Stories, fables, ghostly tales. Welcome listeners to part two of your Round the Fire episodes. And folks, my does this story escalate quickly. Not as all as it seems either for the protagonist's uncle, Mr. Maple, and his faithful servant, Enoch, who demonstrates the dedication and friendship that Mr. Maple has garnered whilst working for him. Enough of a friendship to see Enoch put his life on the line for him, in fact. This is a great story, mates, and I can't wait to share the finale of the Club-Footed Grocer under the Round the Fire series. Turn off the lights, turn up the sound, and get ready for something brilliant. Just like you lot. I opened the shutter and looked out. No one was there. And then suddenly, I saw that a long slip of paper was protruding through the slit of the door. I held it to the light. In rude but vigorous handwriting, the message ran. Put them out on the doorstep and save your skin. What do they want? I asked, as I read him the message. What they'll never have! No, by the Lord, never! He cried, with a fine burst of spirit. Here, Enoch! Enoch! The old fellow came running to the call. Enoch, I've been a good master to you all my life, and it's your turn now. Will you take a risk for me? I thought better of my uncle when I saw how readily the man consented. Whomever else he had wronged, this one at least seemed to love him. Put your cloak on and your hat, Enoch, and out with you by the back door. You know the way across the moor to the Purcells? Tell them that I must have the cart first thing in the morning, and that Purcell must come with the shepherd as well. We must be clear of this or we are done. First thing in the morning, Enoch. And ten pound for the job. Keep the black cloak on and move slow, and they will never see you. We'll keep the house till you come back. It was a job for a brave man to venture out into the vague and invisible dangers of the fell, but the old servant took it as the most ordinary of messages, picking his long black cloak and his soft hat from the hook behind the door. He was ready on the instant. We extinguished the small lamp in the back passage softly unbarred the back door, slipped him out, and barred it up again. Looking through the small hall window, I saw his black garments merge instantly into the night. It is but a few hours before the light comes, nephew, said my uncle, after he had tried all the bolts and bars. You shall never regret this night's work. If we come through safely, it will be the making of you. Stand by me till morning. And I stand by you, whilst there's breath in my body. The cart will be here by five. What isn't ready we can afford to leave behind. We've only to load up and make for the early train at Congleton. Will they let us pass? In broad daylight they dare not stop us. There will be six of us. If they all come and three guns, we can fight our way through. Where can they get guns? Common, wandering seamen? A pistol or two at the most. If we can keep them out for a few hours, we are safe. 
Enoch must be halfway to Purcell's by now. But what do these sailors want? I repeated. You say yourself that you wronged them. A look of mullish obstinacy came over his large white face. Don't ask questions, nephew, and just do what I ask you, said he. Enoch won't come back. He'll just bide there and come with the cart. Hark! What is that? A distant cry rang from out of the darkness, and then another one, short and sharp like the wail of the curlew. It's Enoch! said my uncle, gripping my arm. They're killing poor Enoch! The cry came again, much nearer, and I heard the sound of hurrying steps and a shrill call for help. They are after him! cried my uncle, rushing to the front door. He picked up the lantern and flashed it through the little shutter. Up the yellow funnel of light, a man was running frantically, his head bowed and a black cloak fluttering behind him. The moor seemed to be alive with dim pursuers. The boat! The boat! Gasped my uncle. He pushed it back whilst I turned the key and we swung the door open to admit the fugitive. He dashed in and turned at once with a long yell of triumph. Come on lads, tumble up! All hands, tumble up! Smartly there, all of you! It was so quickly and neatly done that we were taken by storm before we knew that we were attacked. The passage was full of rushing sailors. I slipped out of the clutch of one and ran for my gun, but it was only to crash down onto the stone floor an instant later, with two of them holding onto me. They were so deft and quick that my hands were lashed together even while I struggled, and I was dragged into the settled corner. Unhurt, but very sore in spirit, and the cunning with which our defences had been forced, and the ease with which we had been overcome. They had not even troubled to bind my uncle, but he had been pushed into his chair, and our guns had been taken away. He sat with a very white face, his homely figure and absurd row of curls, looking curiously out of place among the wild figures who surrounded him. There were six of them, all evidently sailors, one I recognized as the man with the earrings whom I had already met upon the road that evening. They were all fine, weather-bronzed, bewhiskered fellows. In the midst of them, leaning against the table, was the freckled man who had passed me on the moor. The great black cloak which poor Enoch had taken out with him was still hanging from his shoulders. He was of a very different type from the others, crafty, cruel, dangerous, with sly, thoughtful eyes, which gloated over my uncle. They suddenly turned themselves upon me, and I never knew how one's skin can creep at a man's glance before. Who are you? He asked. Speak out, or we'll find a way to make you. I, I am Mr. Stephen Maple's nephew. Come to visit him. You are, are you? Well, I wish you joy of your uncle and of your visit too. Quick's the word, lads. For we must be aboard before morning. What shall we do with the olden? Trice him up Yankee fashion and give him six dozens, said one of the seamen. Do you hear? You cursed cockney thief! We'll beat the life out of you if you don't give back what you've stolen. Where are they? I know you never parted with them. My uncle pursed his lips and shook his head, with a face in which his fear and his obstinacy contended. Won't tell, won't you? We'll see about that. Get him ready, Jim. 
One of the seamen seized my uncle and pulled his coat and shirt over his shoulders. He sat lumped in his chair, his body all creased into white rolls which shivered with cold and with terror. Up with him to those hooks! There were rows of them along the walls. Where the smoked meat used to be hung, the seamen tied my uncle by the wrists of two of them, then one of them undid his leather belt. The buckle in, Jim, said the captain. Give him the buckle. You cowards, I cried. To beat an old man? We'll beat a young one next, said he, with a malevolent glance at my corner. Now, Jim, cut a wad out of him. Give him one more chance, cried one of the seamen. Aye, aye, growled one or two others. Give the swab a chance. If you turn soft, you may give them up forever, said the captain. One thing or the other, you must lash it out of him, or you may give up what you took such pains to win, and what would make you a gentleman for life. Every man of you, there's nothing else for it. Which shall it be? Let him have it, they cried savagely. Then stand clear. The buckle of the man's belt whined savagely as he whirled it over his shoulder. My uncle cried out before the blow fell. No, please. I can't stand it, he cried. Let me down. Where are they then? I'll show you if you let me down. They cast off the handkerchiefs and he pulled his coat over his fat round shoulders. The seamen stood around him, the most intense curiosity and excitement upon their swarthy faces. No gammon, cried the man with the freckles. We'll kill you joint by joint if you try to fool us. Now then, where are they? In my bedroom. Where is that? The room above. Whereabouts? In the corner of the oak arc by the bed. The seamen all rushed to the stair, but the captain called them back. We don't leave this cunning old fox behind us. <laughs> your face drops at that, does it? By the Lord, I believe you are trying to slip your anchor. Here, lads, make him fast and take him along. With a confused trampling of feet, they rushed up the stairs, dragging my uncle in the midst of them. For an instant, I was alone. My hands were tied, but not my feet. I might rouse the police and intercept these rascals before they could reach the sea. For a moment, I hesitated as to whether I should leave my uncle alone in such a plight. But I should be of more service to him, or at the worst, to his property, if I went than if I stayed. I rushed to the hall door, and as I reached it, I heard a yell above my head. A shattering, splintering noise. And then, amid a chorus of shouts, a huge weight fell with a horrible thud at my very feet. Never will I live will that squelching thud pass out of my ears. And there, just in front of me, in a lane of light cast by the open door, lay my unhappy uncle, his bald head twisted onto one shoulder, like the wrung neck of a chicken. It needed but a glance to see that his spine was broken, and that he was dead. The gang of seamen had rushed downstairs so quickly that they were clustered at the door and crowding all around me almost as soon as I had realized what had occurred. There's no doing of us, mate, said one of them to me. He hove himself through the window, and that's the truth. Don't you put it down to us. He thought he could get to windward of us if once he was out in the dark, you see. 
but he came head foremost and broke his bloomin' neck. And a blessed good job too, cried the chief with a savage oath. I'd have done it for him if he hadn't took the lead. Don't make any mistake, my lads. This is murder, and we're all in it together. There's only one way out of it, and that is to hang together unless, as the saying goes, you mean to hang apart. There's only one witness. He looked at me with his malicious little eyes, and I saw that he had something that gleamed, either a knife or a revolver in the breast of his pea jacket. Two of the men slipped between us. Stow that, Captain Elias, said one of them. If this old man met his end, it is through no fault of ours. The worst we ever meant him was to take some of the skin off his back. But as to this young fellow, we have no quarrel with him. You fool. You may have no quarrel with him, but he has his quarrel with you. He'll swear your life away if you don't silence his tongue. It's his life or ours, and don't you make any mistake. Aye, aye. The skipper has the longest head of any of us. Better do what he tells you, says the other. But my champion, who was the fellow with the earrings, covered me with his own broad chest and swore roundly that no one should lay a finger on me. The others were equally divided, and my fate might have been the cause of a quarrel between them, when suddenly the captain gave a cry of delight and amazement, which was taken up by the whole gang. I followed their eyes and outstretched fingers, and this was what I saw. My uncle was lying with his legs outstretched, and the club foot was that which was furthest from us. All round this foot a dozen brilliant objects were twinkling and flashing in the yellow light, which streamed from the open door. The captain caught up the lantern and held it to the place. The huge sole of his boot had been shattered in the fall, and it was clear now that it had been a hollow box in which he stowed his valuables. For the path was all sprinkled with precious stones, three which I saw were of an unusual size, and as many as forty, I should think, of fair value. The seamen had cast themselves down and were greedily gathering them up, when my friend with the earrings plucked me by the sleeve. Here's your chance, mate, he whispered. Off you go before worse comes of it. It was a timely hint, and it did not take me long to act upon it. A few cautious steps and I had passed unobserved beyond the circle of light. Then I set off running, falling and rising and falling again. For no one who has not tried it can tell how hard it is to run over uneven ground with hands which are fastened together. I ran and I ran, until for want of breath I could no longer put one foot before the other. But I need not have hurried so, for when I had gone a long way, I stopped at last to breathe, and, looking back, I could still see the gleam of the lantern far away, and the outline of the seaman, who squatted round it. Then at last this single point of light went suddenly out, and the whole great moor was left in the thickest darkness. So deftly was I tied, that it took me a long half hour and a broken tooth before I got my hands free. My idea was to make my way across to the Purcell's farm, but north was the same as south under that pitchy sky, and for hours I wandered among the rustling, scuttling sheep without any certainty as to where I was going. When at last, there came a glimmer in the east and the undulating fells, grey with the morning mist, rolled once more to the horizon. I recognised that I was close by Purcell's farm. 
and there, a little in front of me, I was startled to see another man walking in the same direction. At first, I approached him warily, but before I overtook him, I knew, by the bent back and tottering step, that it was Enoch, the old servant, and right glad I was to see that he was living. He had been knocked down, beaten, and his cloak and hat taken away by these ruffians, and all night he had wandered in the darkness, like myself, in search of help. He burst into tears when I told him of his master's death, and sad hiccuping with the hard, dry sobs of an old man among the stones upon the moor. It's the men of the Black Mogul, he said. Yes, yes, I knew that they would be the end of him. Who are they? I asked. Well, well, you are one of his own folk. He has passed away, yes. Yes, it's all over and done. I can't tell you about it. No man better, but mum's the word with the old Enoch unless master wants him to speak. But his own nephew come to help him in the hour of need. Yes, yes, Mr. John, you ought to know. It was like this, sir. Your uncle had his grocer's business at Stephanie, but he had another business also. He would buy as well as sell, and when he bought he never asked no questions where the stuff came from. Why should he? It wasn't no business of his, was it? If folk bought him a stone or a silver plate, what was it to him where they got it? That's a good sense and it ought to be good laws, I hold. Anyhow, it was good enough for us at Stepney. Well, there was a steamer came from South Africa, what foundered at sea. At least they say so. And Lloyd's paid the money. She had some very fine diamonds invoiced as aboard of her. Soon after there came the brig Black Mogul into the port of London with her papers all right as having cleared from Port Elizabeth with the cargo of his. The captain, which his name was Elis, he came to see the master. And what do you think that he had to sell? Why, sir, as I'm a living sinner, he had a packet of diamonds for all the world just the same as what was lost out over there in the African steamer. How did he get them? I don't know. Master didn't know. He didn't seek to know either. The captain, he was anxious for reasons of his own to get them safe, so he gave them to the master, same as you might put a thing in a bank. But master, he had time to get fond of them, and he wasn't over-satisfied as to where the black mogul had been trading, or where her captain had got the stones. So when he come back for them, the master, he said, as he thought they were best in his own hands. Mind, I don't hold with it myself, but that was what master said to Captain Elias, in the little black parlour at Stepney. That was how he got his leg broken and three of his ribs. So the captain got jugged for that, and the master, when he was able to get about, thought he would have peace for 15 years. And he came away from London because he was afraid of the sailormen. But at the end of five years, the captain was out and after him, with as many of his crew as he could gather. Send for the police, you says. Well, there are two sides to that. And the master, he wasn't much fond of the police than Elis was. But they famed mastering, as you have seen for yourself, and they bested him at last. And the loneliness that he thought would be his safety has proven his ruin. Well, well, he was hard to many, but a good master to me. And it's long before I come on such another. One word in conclusion. A strange cutter which had been hanging about the coast was seen to beat down the Irish Sea that morning, and it is conjectured that Elis and his men were on board of it. At any rate, nothing has been heard of them since. 
It was shown at the inquest that my uncle had lived in a sordid fashion for years, and he left little behind him. The mere knowledge that he possessed this treasure, which he carried about with him in so extraordinary a fashion, had appeared to be the joy of his life. He had never, as far as we could learn, tried to realize any of his diamonds. So his disreputable name, when living, was not atoned for by any posthumous benevolence. And the family, equally scandalized by his life and by his death, have finally buried a memory of the club-footed grocer of Stepney. So, <laughs> Mr. Maple was stashing away that treasure trove of stones and gems this whole time in his club foot. Of all places, goodness. Now, this man is one dedicated fellow, and his love for all things valuable appears to be an addiction of sorts. Part of me thinks he's in love with riches, but also some part of me is thinking he's enjoying the fact that he has what others want, and in particular, loving the fact that those around him that desire what he has will never get it. So, there is a streak of cruelty and malice deep within Mr. Maple, and we see that his cruelty and isolation is what ends up killing him. There is something to be said, though, about Mr. Maple's friendships. When he stands up or defends a fellow, he appears to go to the nth degree to do so. Enoch was willing to risk his life to help him, and I wager that his friends in different places around him would do the same. What a complex and intriguing character, this Mr. Maple before he leapt to his apparent death. Either way, one of the better round the fire tales for sure. Now you little lovelies, it's that time. Time to say my thank yous to the brilliant people that support and supercharge this podcast. Before I start, if you want your own mini stories and your name called out in every episode, as well as participate in the direction of this podcast, visit my Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash sfgt you lovelies help make this happen today's theme is going to be pirates and gunslingers first up my old night tea titans maya ship of scarves in the darkest night across the still waters of the caribbean sea is a ship whose hull is bound together by tar and legendarily thick woven scarves during the 1700s, many buccaneers' duels were had between pirates and the privateers, which were those who were given the rights by admirals via letters of the Marquis to seek out pirates and eliminate them. Before becoming the Ship of Scarves, the Revenge was the ship's name, and was such a ship that when spotted raiding nearby trade galleons, was left quietly alone. Sheer firepower with 112 cannons, nothing could rival the Revenge. During the years, the Revenge found no opponent worth its medal, and all those who would see it would run in fear, until the revenge fought one privateer who was solely bent on fame and not so much the fortune, designing a ship laden in explosive breaches specifically to take the revenge out by its front. Ramming straight into the revenge at such a speed as to blow a hole in its hull, but still the revenge lived on. For the ship's double layer hull meant that it gave the crew time to use the only materials they had to hold the hull together quickly snapped up tar and thick scarves that were stolen from their recent merchant ship hall. Ingenuity birthed the ship of scarves, and thus the ship floated on, and continued to raid with wood, tar, and scarves, acting as the bonding reminder of the perils in water warfare. Solstra, Coin Flip Kelly 
Kelly was a dead-eye gunslinger with a nickname derived from her keen ability to flip a coin and shoot her hip iron straight through the middle. Initially, Kelly wasn't well known, seeking basic cleaning jobs to pay her way to earning her first hip iron. Even when she was young, she had a passion for bullseye gunplay, but never had a chance to focus her skill. But destiny has a way of working its magic on unsuspecting heroes. Kelly's town was raided, and picking up a fallen townsman Sixer shot her first criminal by chance. The gun was loaded, the trigger pulled, as she aimed down that site, taking out the famous Leadfoot Lauren, a local criminal that was terrorizing nearby towns. Coin Flip Kelly's history started from that point, and as she worked, earned her pay, and brought her first hip iron, she became a bounty hunter, with her calling card the flick and flip of a coin. Ting, the sound would go. Crooks, thieves, rogues, and cow hustlers around would hear that sound. Nearby towns began to fear Kelly and her coins, and a reputation rang through local taverns in the west for having a dead-eye shot before any questions were asked. They say that one tavern unknowingly scared off its patrons simply by popping a tin bottle open, mimicking the sound of a flipping coin. And boy, how they scattered. Coin flip Kelly, one gal that reminds you why it's worth staying on the side of the law. Mates, I wanted to mimic some short tales that Round the Fire has in its lineup and bring some action into our thank you tales. I hope you're having a fantastic day or night, you two, and thank you so much for your support, mates. And of course, my wonderful white tea warlords, I own cows, Barrel Buster Bart. Barrel Buster Bart's unique strategy of winning a buccaneer fight was never to aim down the sight of his rifle, tell his men to engage with hooks on the other ship, or even attempt to duel his enemies. He'd rather put a hole in their ship with a well-placed barrel to its hull. Barrel Buster Bart's speciality was espionage and explosive ingenuity, stealing privateers' flags and disguising themselves whilst pulling up against large galleons with twice his number of cannons, only to unfurl the pirate flag and lob barrels of tar, nail and gunpowder off the sides of its ship to the enemy's deck. You see folks, Barrel Busters are effective at destroying a ship, but only effective at close range. Bart really packs in the heat when it comes to his Barrel Busters, but as a result, they're extremely heavy. And with a solid hurl onto the deck, curiosity leads to terror, and men are sliced and diced by debris that Bart had stolen from ships he'd looted in the past. And thus the cycle continues, and Barrel Buster Bart, for lack of a better word, barrels on. And Lee Bauer, Henry Hookshot. Some pirates simply can't catch trade merchants and are unable to keep up with the sheer firepower that some of the ships can muster in defense of being pillaged. Enter Henry Hookshot, the skipper whose daring action earned his legendary name as the Hornet of the Sea. When a potential merchant victim was ever spotted on the sea's plains, practically glistening with gold as Henry would say, Henry would zip by it in his skipper, which was lightweight, nimble, and unassuming. Ultimately, very, very quick. He'd sneak by the ship and fling multiple ropes to keep point on the ship. Those ropes would then be attached to the back of the main ship, and only then would the mayhem start. One cue from Henry saw their ship work within the rope's slack range to only slingshot past them at maximum velocity, tearing off chunks off the ship with incredible force. This led to the entire ship buckling and almost flipping. Ship's crew were rendered unconscious at times, and permanent structural damage would take place in areas that Henry had entangled, with his ship completely braced for this exact method of attack. 
Henry Hookshot shows how intelligent firepower can produce devastating results. Mates, I hope you both enjoyed your pirate tales. When I realized that sailors were involved in today's stories, I figured why not some water-themed thank you stories for everybody, pirates being the theme of choice. Either way, I hope you enjoyed these mates and thank you so much as always for your support. And of course, my old grain forces, Chad Warren, Just Heather, Paige Marcini, Peter Raffelli, Tasha Moncrief, Christina Boyd, Divided by Zero, Tristan Cassidy, and Dolphin and Cow. Mates, all of you are brilliant and are the nitrous to this podcast engine. It's Friday, you lovely, so it's time for a two-day work holiday, and in my case, a lovely time to sleep. Take it easy, folks. Eat loads of the things you love, and enjoy your weekend to the fullest. Next week, I'm returning to Dracula, and a listener-submitted story by Fee Stringer is in the works. Cheers, mates, and as always, till next we meet.